Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics, also at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. Today we have a guest who's both a friend and a colleague of us at Biola University, Thaddeus Williams is an assistant professor of biblical and theological studies. He's also the author of a book that you gave me the privilege of endorsing, an excellent book called Reflect, Becoming Yourself by Mirroring the Greatest Person in History. I hope our listeners will consider picking that up. Well, today we're going to talk about a controversial topic, which is social justice. So Thaddeus, thanks for coming on and being willing to tackle such a controversial subject as this. Sure, it's great to be with you guys. Let me just start off with more of a broad question and ask, what is the biblical call to justice itself? Sure. Well, you see it all over the text. You see, you know, Jeremiah 22, do justice and righteousness, deliver from the hand of the oppressor, him who's been robbed. Uh, You see, in the New Testament, Jesus announces his whole ministry as proclaiming good news to the poor and liberty to the captives, recovering sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Uh, you get Isaiah 1, seek justice. It just pops up all over the text from the beginning to the end, from Genesis to Revelation. And so I would say, you know, justice isn't optional. It's not something God suggests. It's something God commands. Now, to me, one of the, the distinguishing marks of biblical justice, as opposed to um, things that might go under the waving banner of justice, is biblical justice is always tapped into the truth about who God is uh, and the truth about who we are because of who God is. And so you see um, the same God who commands us to, to do justice commands us to test everything, hold fast to what is good in First Thessalonians. Uh, there's a scene I was just reading this morning uh, in John's Gospel where Jesus is confronting the... Pharisees who are all up in arms. It's so unjust that Jesus has healed somebody on Sabbath. And rather than say, yes, that is unjust, let me protest with you, he calls them out. He says, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So I'd say that's a mark of biblical justice. It's attuned to reality. It's tapped into the reality of who God is and who we are because of who God is. It doesn't just make kind of knee-jerk reactions. So Thaddeus, you're a professor of biblical and theological studies. There's a ton of different topics that you could explore and write on. Why have you chosen to delve into the topic of social justice, which really is a controversial issue both inside and outside the church? Yeah, mostly for the the fame and popularity. Um, I'd say it's just one of those issues right now that if you want to get rich (laughs) and be well-liked by the masses, (laughs) no, just kidding. Uh, it is one of those things I've been on the fence about because there's it's such a powder keg kind of issue. And so for me, the willingness to dive in deep is because I see, you know, after being in the classroom for years and years and working at the local church level, I've just seen this rising call to social justice, and I've seen a real lack of discernment, um, just kind of in a lot of different contexts, of people who hear justice and assume, oh, well, the Bible commands us to be just, we should, you know, hitch our wagon to that trailer. And a lot of it, the more I've gotten deep into it, a lot of what we're calling justice these days 
I actually take to be a false gospel. I actually take to be um, antithetical to the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so I think it's just an important time for us to, you know, the tagline of the show, think biblically, uh, to think biblically about justice to make sure that we aren't getting duped into a counterfeit Christ. That is given that the Bible's so clear about justice, and I would add a passage like my, you know, Micah 6, 8, where it's very clear, it's just, what does the Lord require of you? And to do justice is one of those things that's, re, that's explicitly required of us. Why is the concept of social justice so controversial today? Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with uh, the way words are so slippery here. So if I... Um, if somebody questions, say, my sexual identity uh, or my gender identity, then by today's standards, I am the victim of a terrible injustice. Right? And so, so the playing field is, is shifting on the things that we define as justice and the things we define as injustice. And a lot of those issues kind of cut to the heart of our deep worldview commitments. And so what you believe about the nature of God, what you believe it means to be human, the, the teleology of human nature, what we exist for, uh, all the kind of headline issues, whether it's pronoun use, whether it's bathroom access, whether it's the definition of marriage, whether it's abortion, uh, these are kind of the, the tips of the iceberg, but underneath every one of those issues, you find deeply incompatible views about who God is, whether there's a God, uh, what it means to be human. And so I think these are all kind of trigger issues that tap into some some pretty deep worldview incompatibilities. Now, I know, I know you come from a, you know, a largely Reformed tradition with uh, appreciation for, ge- you know, general revelation and uh, things like that. I, I think, wouldn't, wouldn't we acknowledge that there can be legitimate uh, movements for justice uh, among non-believers, um, w- without without having to come from an explicitly Christian view of the world, how how would you assess that? Yeah, great question. I would say, you know, if we're thinking in biblical categories, Paul makes it pretty clear in Romans two that the law isn't just written in Exodus twenty with the Ten Commandments. It's not just written in Deuteronomy five with with the Ten Commandments. It's written into human nature. And so that means we can find points of contact between the Christian and non-Christian world. Uh, and, and I think that's helpful to see that if I'm having a conversation with somebody over the question of abortion, I don't have to assume, well, because I'm a regenerate Christian, uh, and they aren't, therefore there's no common ground here. The fact of Romans 2 is that God has written the law into that person's heart, and so they have a, a core conviction that taking innocent life is wrong, that I share in common with them because we're both image bearers of God. And so now I can have, from that point of contact, a meaningful conversation about, well, does abortion indeed uh, terminate an innocent human life? And if so, we can work out from that common ground to hopefully, you know, reach a little clarity on the topic. And so based on that natural law that God inscribes in every human heart, I think there's a lot of, point, a lot of points of contact. Tell me, in what ways do you think some of today's social justice movements are coming from? And this is a quote uh, to quote you directly. Actually, in a blog interview you did on this this subject for me, you said it's, quote, a framework that is not compatible with the Bible. Could you unpack that a little bit? 
Sure. There's a lot there, but just to highlight a few points, uh, in a biblical worldview, one of the starting points is the creator-creature distinction. Right? God's God and we're not. Uh, what I see a lot of what's called social justice today doing is erasing that line. And so let me just, just highlight a few examples. In historic Christian theology, God is infallible. He's perfect. His, his verdict about reality is always right. And so when you erase the creator-creature distinction, we ascribe that divine attribute of perfection and infallibility to ourselves. And so if I feel this way, nobody can question my authoritative verdict about how I feel. Uh, and so that, that's one of the ways you see the, the line being erased between creator and creature. Another way is uh, God has the attribute of omniscience. And part of his omniscience is he can see into the hearts of people and know our, our deepest core motives. Well, a lot of the social justice movement today claims that kind of omniscience for itself. Well, I know you said such and such, but I can peer into the core of your being and know that what's really going on there is bigotry. I, I can see through what you're actually saying and what you're actually doing to your core motive, which is you know, misogyny or racism or something like that. And so that's one of the biggest incompatibilities I see is it just wipes out the line between, between creator and creature and starts ascribing all kinds of divine attributes to ourselves. Now, another big point of contrast is, according to the gospel, our innocence, our not guilty verdict, comes through one and only one way, which is the finished cross work of Jesus. And so Jesus is our great substitute. That's how we get declared not guilty. What I see in a lot of what's being called social justice today, not all of it, but a lot of it, um, gives us a different foundation for feeling not guilty. Well, I'm not guilty because I'm in this or that identity group. I'm not guilty because I've been victimized in, in ways X, Y, and Z. Uh, and so I am by default righteous, not based off my group identity in Christ, but based off some other group identity. And I think that gives us a way of, that, that's why I called it earlier a false gospel, is it's a way of getting the not guilty sentence that's other than God's only way of justifying us through the cross of Jesus. I think you make a good point about how, how subjective some of this has become, where the, the person's experience becomes authoritative uh, and the the power of story uh, in this has become so compelling, but I think w w wouldn't we want to? Wouldn't we also want to say that um, you know that that, that some that, that experience is real, uh, sure, and there absolutely. and there are you know there are individuals and groups I think who have either historically or at present uh, been vict been vict real victims of real oppression um, that, that illustrate things that actually need to be fixed in the culture. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, I, there's real racism on, on planet Earth. Ever since Genesis 3, that's a thing. There's real sexism on planet Earth ever since Genesis 3. And uh, to me, that's another core distinction, is a biblical worldview is going to say, where's all that coming from? And in Ecclesiastes, you know, Solomon makes this really insightful statement. He says, there's moral insanity in our hearts. We're, we're morally crazy. It's the same thing Jeremiah's getting at when he says, 
you know, that the heart is desperately sick, who can understand it? And so I think a, a biblical approach is going to acknowledge there's real injustice. It's going to listen hard to the stories of people who've been on the receiving end of injustice. It's going to take those stories very seriously. And then when it comes to the diagnosis, it's going to ultimately get to the root disease and not just face the symptoms. It's going to get to the root disease of sin and take that, that sin disease to its only ultimate remedy, the gospel. Um, so that's not to say there isn't such a thing as uh, systemic injustice. The Bible even says that there are those who frame injustice by statute. There are systemic evils that are a reflection of our sinful hearts. Um, but I think we need to take very seriously um, the root of evil. You know, it reminds me, there was a, a G.K. Chesterton article from years and years ago where the newspaper there in the U.K. had asked the question, what's wrong with society? And all these, you know, responses kept flooding in. Well, the, the problem is the Germans. The problem is this or that. Everybody's pointing to something in society. And G.K. Chesterton wrote the shortest article of his career. His article was two words, I am. <laughs> What's the problem with society? I am, signed G.K. And that level of humility that we bring to it, acknowledging that, that we're the sinners and real, realizing that we might be complicit in injustice in ways that we're oblivious to, and so we want to hear very clear um, what people are saying and get on our knees before the cross about that stuff. That is, I think it might be helpful for our listeners if we take a moment and look at this document where you unpacked 25 differences between a biblical view of justice and the view of justice in the social, quote, social justice movement. So let me throw these different categories out at you and just kind of in Twitter responses highlight the difference so we can see sure. the different worldview approaches that they're taking. So for example, what's the difference between biblical justice and the social justice movement on how they understand and identify evil? Sure. Well, some of what I was just getting at is what's often called social justice would say all evil, it's fundamentally a systemic problem. So external systems of oppression, they could be blamed for all suffering, and they could be fixed through social activism. Whereas a biblical worldview is going to say, yes, there's evil systems, you know, we frame injustice by statute, is the way the Old Testament puts it, and we ought to seek justice and overthrow corrupt systems, but again, it cuts deeper and says there's sinners who make those systems unjust. You know, sin resides in every human heart. It can only be redeemed by the regenerating work of God through the gospel. And, and so I think that gives us a certain humility as we approach injustice, because it's not, it's all out there. Uh, in which case I could become really obnoxiously self-righteous. Biblical categories give us a way of saying, you know, a lot of that evil's in here, too, so I need to do some, some serious repentance. Um, another point of difference um, is that guilt, according to a lot of what's called social justice these days, guilt can be assessed on the basis of somebody's skin tone. So you can be condemned based on the collective guilt, guilt of like a group identity or something. Uh, and then there's forms of penance and re-education to alleviate that guilt. Whereas in a biblical worldview, every ethnicity, every skin tone, every gender stands guilty based on our group identity in Adam. Right? This is Paul's argument in Romans. We're all guilty in Adam, and that guilt is only erased by finding our new and deepest identity in Jesus, the second Adam. Uh, so there's another big point of contrast. Another one is... Uh, 
according to a lot of contemporary social justice, evil is three categories. There's the patriarchy, capitalism, and whiteness. Those are the three evils that need to be confronted, the patriarchy, capitalism, and whiteness. Uh, in a biblical worldview, evil is, as the reformers used to put it, you know, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, and so it, it just has a different uh, definition of, of the source of evil. Uh, so there, there's a few points of contrast. There's, you know, 22 more uh, that I list, but hopefully that, that gives a good appetizer. How about the nature of love? Yeah, that's a big one. So uh, in a biblical worldview, because there's a different view of what it means to be human, in a biblical worldview, we're broken. And so my desires are far from perfect. I have, I have unjust sentiments, is the way C.S. Lewis would put it. And because my sentiments are unjust, because my feelings uh, are messed up and my heart's broken, I'm loved well when people help expose destructive feelings, destructive behaviors in my life. There's something redemptive about love when I acknowledge I'm not perfect. Uh, but with a lot of the new social justice movements, there's no category of sin because there's no category of the holiness of God. And so in my current state, what I feel is sacred and perfect and unquestionable. And so if you don't accept me exactly as I am. And if you don't celebrate exactly who I am, then by definition, you're a bigot. And I think that that definition of love, you're only loving me if, I'm ex if you're accepting me exactly how I am in my current form. I, I just don't know of a relationship in the world that actually works like that. You know, if I look at my seven-year-old and say, you know, I saw you haul off and slap your little sister, and I'm just going to accept and celebrate that behavior, then I don't think I'm being a very loving parent, right? I recognize that She's a work in process and, and in progress, and she needs help, and she needs to be loved out to having more just sentiments towards her sister. And so I think a biblical view of love could be a lot more redemptive. Now, that doesn't mean we go be self-righteous about it, and uh, we obviously have to remove the planks from our own eyes first. Uh, but I think there's, there's a lot more redemptive power to biblical love over and against, I'm just going to accept everything about you. I don't know any relationship that actually works like that. So Thaddeus, you've, I mean, you've said already that there, you know, you know, points of contact between the way the church pursues justice within a biblical framework and the way the culture pursues it. Um, yeah, you've also pointed out some of the contrasts. There, there's some rather sharp contrast between those approaches. I, I know you're you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater on this, uh, yeah. and lose. You know, and be, just just have Christian faith become this individual pietistic faith without any kind of social um, implication, because um, that seems to me to be a, tr a truncated, an incomplete expression. Because you know, as, as you said, you know, f from the start in the Old Testament, you know, especially the prophetic tradition, Christian faith was intended to have a social dimension to it. It wasn't just an individual moral code. Sure. Um, where Give us some examples, maybe an example or two, of where you think the current uh, so-called social justice movement has run amok. Sure. Um, I would say if you look biblically at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 
It says that, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, this, this list of virtues that the Holy Spirit infuses in us. Um, where I see a lot of the contemporary social justice movement getting off the rails is look at the fruit that it produces. Uh, I, I've seen a lot of my friends where instead of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, you, you end up with hostility and suspicion and divisiveness and uh, you know, whereas biblical love, according to, you know, First Corinthians, love is not easily offended. A lot of the new social justice movement uh, encourages offendedness and rewards offendedness. It's it's a mark of virtue. Uh, and so I'd say that's one of the, the, the biggest points of, of contrast, is what kind of character is it forming in us? Um, so I'd say that's one of them. Um, but I would add to that, you know, if you look at if we were to hop in a time machine and go way back to the second century, you had this plague ravage the Roman Empire. And some historians would say that almost a third of the Roman Empire was wiped out by this mysterious plague. And if you look at how the culture responded back then, it was, this life is all we've got. You know, I'll be damned if you're going to take it from me. So they went running for the hills away from the plague except for our brothers and sisters who love Jesus, they went running to the bedsides of the plague and gave them dignity and, and, and treated them as image bearers of God. Now, it wasn't, you will agree with our sexual ethic or we're not going to help you, or anything like that. It was, we will love you because of the gospel and because you bear the image of God. And a lot of our brothers and sisters dropped dead of the plague in the second century for living the gospel. Now, if you fast forward to the 1980s, it's a very parallel situation. This mysterious plague breaks out. It seems particularly to, affecting, to be affecting homosexual males. Their immune systems are shutting down for some reason. Everybody's scared. And where's the church in the 1980s? And they're right where the pagans of the second century were, which was running for the hills and oftentimes, you know, turning over our shoulders to yell, you know, that's, that's the wrath of God coming to get you. And so I think there, there's a deep context behind the way we talk about justice in the culture, where there's some areas where the church needs to, to say some sincere apologies, because that's where, you know, I see the rift and the polarization and the us versus them thinking. There's a lot of room for the church to step up and say, you know, there were times that we were not living compatible with the gospel. So there's a few thoughts. Let me ask you this question. We're, we're at a moment where... I hear increasingly from voices in the church and without that the Christian position itself on the natural family is bigoted and hateful and harming other people, meaning the Christian position itself is unjust. And we're told if we want to be just, we have to change our position. How is it that we hold to historic Christian doctrine and still live out and make, make a case for justice in an environment that increasingly sees Christian theology that way? Yeah, that's a great question. I think when it comes to the new social justice movement tends to see any kind of hierarchy, any kind of power differential is the way they'll often describe it. It's automatically evil because the, the ultimate end game, the goal is equality across the board. In fact, I just I saw a video uh, last night of uh, an author arguing that you know, we need equality between parents and infants, and what that needs to look like is parents need to seek consent before changing a diaper. <laughs> you 
And so there's a sense of, you know, we need to even break down the hierarchy between parent-child because all hierarchy is inherently evil. And I think biblically we need to show that, yes, there's a lot of ways that power differentials because of sin can get really evil and really oppressive, and we need to combat those. But we also need to be able to tell a beautiful and compelling story about certain hierarchies and certain differences that are part of God's good original design for human flourishing. So, so think of the whole Bible opening up with these benedictions, right? God is making stuff and saying, it's good, it's good, it's good at the end of every creation day. Now, what he's doing is he's making differences. He's saying, you know, the heavens and the earth, he's separating the two and saying it's good. He's separating the waters above from the waters below and saying it's good. He's separating the dry land from the oceans. It's good. And then you get to the first malediction in the Bible, the first bad word, the first time God looks at something and says it's not good, is when he looks at Adam all by himself and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. Well, why is that? Uh, Because there's, there's a lack of diversity there. And so then God makes woman, and it's the only day of creation where God doesn't just say it's good. On day six, he says it's exceedingly good, according to some translation. And so that fundamental distinction, the male-female distinction that reflects something of the image of God is something beautiful and to be cherished and not something to be erased as if it's irrelevant. And so I think, particularly in this cultural moment, being able to not only understand a deeper biblical theology about why these differences are beautiful and should be celebrated, not erased, but actually living that out in a compelling way for the culture. So they can see, oh, that, that's, that's the beauty of family when a family is living its built-in telos, the way God designed family to function. I think that's a big part of it. That is, we, we appreciate your perspective on this. This this is a really complicated area of discussion, it seems to me, because as you've point rightly pointed out, the Bible's really clear about the the mandate for the community of God's people to be concerned about issues of of justice, not only for individuals who are wrong, but also in the broader society and culture. Yet there are some things about the current social justice emphasis that I do think are uh, are framed in a way that's quite foreign to the way the Scripture would do that. And so to yeah. to pursue this well, while at the same time being discerning about how we talk about this and how we do it, is, is I think seems to me a real a real ongoing challenge for the church. And, and it seems to me that the, the credibility of the gospel is at stake with our sure. with our ability to to see some of these justice issues really well. Um, this may not be quite as quite as true here in the West, but in, in especially in parts of the world where inju- injustices run rampant on every street corner. It's just impossible for the gospel to have credibility if we're also perceived as having our heads in the sand about these matters of justice. So I appreciate the, you know trying to parse this in a way that's faithful to Scripture, yet at the same time doesn't downplay the the need for that mandate being fulfilled. I think is a really tricky balance to maintain. Yeah, and I think it's important here for the church. It could very easily just be reactionary and say, well, there's a huge um, debate raging in the culture over race. 
And, well, some people approach that from a perspective where we see some things that are incompatible with Scripture. Therefore, let's just ditch the whole conversation or let's just rail against it. And, and I think that that kind of reactionary um, Christian thinking is, is pretty superficial and unbiblical. I think it's a great time to be alive and to love Jesus, to be able to model how the gospel speaks into that. Because at the end of the day, if, if our core identity is in Jesus, then you get this beautiful every tongue, tribe, and nation diversity united under Jesus. And so it's very important right now to not just take a, well, we're against everything and we're going to be the, the moral referees of culture, you know, blowing the whistle anytime we see something unbiblical. Uh, not so much that as much as living out the beautiful biblical alternative and show how the gospel speaks in to sexuality and tells people your core identity is not your sexual attractions. It can be deeper, your identity in Jesus. Your, your core identity is not uh, your economic status. Your core identity is not your racial identity group. You can have Jesus transcends all that in a way that ends up redeeming all of it. And so I think, yeah, it's just an important time for the Church to step up and think in, in gospel-centered ways about all these important issues. That is, thanks for your work in this area. Our listeners will check out your book, Reflect. And uh, thanks for your ministry and for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. You bet. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Thaddeus Williams, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.